Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Nico Perino, and I am the host of So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I'm in FIRE's Philadelphia office today, recording somewhat of a surprise podcast. We had a big victory for free speech at the United States Supreme Court this morning. I wouldn't say it was unexpected because we were expecting the decision to come down before the end of the term at the end of this month or the beginning of July. Uh, But it came down today in a case called Mattel v. Tam, formerly Lee v. Tam. And the case challenged the United States Patent and Trademark Office's contention that a certain band name, the Slants, is disparaging toward Asians and therefore unqualified for trademark registration. This, despite the fact that the band is composed of all Asian American members, and that the name of the band was chosen to send a message of empowerment, not disparagement. The question before the court was this. Is the disparagement clause of the 1946 Lanham Trademark Act invalid under the First Amendment? The court's answer in its 8-0 decision delivered today on June 19th, 2017, was yes, it is invalid under the First Amendment. And joining me to break it all down is a familiar voice, Ron Collins. He previously appeared on our Lenny Bruce episode And in case you've forgotten a little bit about his background, he is a scholar at the University of Washington School of Law and the editor-in-chief of FIRE's First Amendment Library. Thanks for coming back on the show, Ron. It's a delight to be here, Nico. Also joining us is Zach Greenberg. He is a FIRE Justice Robert H. Jackson Legal Fellow, and he's a first-timer on the show. Welcome, Zach. Thanks, Nico. So, Ron, I want to start with you. I'm looping you into this podcast without much warning. You are here in our Philadelphia offices today to talk to the interns about Lenny Bruce and to record a separate podcast with me about the Espionage Act, which will come out next week. So you weren't expecting to talk about Mattel v. Tam. Um, We had the slants actually in our office in April to discuss the case. At that point, of course, we didn't know how it was going to turn out. Uh, That interview will play shortly. Before we get to that interview, I want to get your big takeaways, Ron. What were you looking for from this case, and what did you find in it now that the decision is here? Well, first of all, it's great to to be back, uh, Nico, so thank you for having me. Uh, Two important First Amendment cases come on today, one out of uh, North Carolina and and then the um, Battelle versus Tam case. And the North Carolina case is Packingham v. North Carolina, and it's actually a case we've discussed on this podcast previously with Eugene Volokh. Yes, and uh, in both cases, the First Amendment wins, and uh, a a good dollop of liberty comes to the American people, and I think we're better for it, all the better for it. Uh, Before actually getting into the uh, nitty-gritty, uh, of the case, I think something that is important to talk about, and that is the group, the slants. I've heard them. Uh, they're a progressive group. Uh, they're a cutting edge group. Um, and I think by taking the stand that they did, all right, that we as Asian Americans want, want to reclaim this name, all right? We want to appropriate this name for something progressive, all right? 
is a wonderful example of how liberty and equality can come together. And there has been a long fight in the liberal community about this when it comes to hate speech, when it comes to offensive speech, when it comes to bigoted speech. And this is a good example of progressives using the First Amendment, all right, as a sword to attack inequality, to attack bigotry, to attack racism, and at the same time to defend the First Amendment. So from a cultural vantage point, I think what the group the Slants did here was very significant, and I hope it proves to be an example of how other progressives can use the First Amendment to fight bigotry, to fight racism, to fight the very sorts of things that the Slants wanted to when they wanted to attack and did attack this name and reappropriate it for their own uh, progressive egalitarian purposes. And so I think for me, before we even get to the opinion, eight zip in this case, I think that's very significant. Yeah. And, you know, it's significant, too, because they they took this up as a cause at, at great cost to themselves. I was, as we'll hear in the interview coming up with members of the slants, you know, cases like this are expensive. They had pro bono attorneys, but they still needed to pay for the printing costs associated with court cases. And that can be expensive. And it took it's taken years of their life to get it all the way up to the Supreme Court and ultimately come to a successful conclusion with, with today's victory. Zach, you are writing this up for FIRE's uh, website, and anyone interested in seeing that write-up can go to thefire.org. What are your big takeaways from this case from the legal perspective? Well, Nico, from the legal perspective, it's a great, great victory for the First Amendment. Um, this law, part of the Lanham Act, that uh, prohibited the registration of uh, trademarks that are disparaging, um, it was struck down by the court, which is a very rare occurrence. The court rarely goes into matters of trademarks, intellectual property generally. And for the court to take a stand and say, look, that we cannot have a law that punishes individuals based on uh, derogatory or disparaging speech, it's a great victory for the First Amendment. Yeah, there are some interesting aspects to this case, Ron, and we were talking before we went live here about some of them, particularly uh, the viewpoint discrimination angle, the commercial speech angle. What, what do you find interesting? Well, there were a number of ways, if the court wanted to, that it could have circumvented uh, any uh, protection under the First Amendment. Uh, I think one of the things, and we can talk more about this, uh, is that uh, despite what we hear about hate speech uh, not being protected, uh, it is clear from this opinion uh, that hate speech and here the court just reaffirms what it's long said, uh, but it, it seems that some in the public domain don't seem to realize it, but now they've said it uh, with eight votes behind it, uh, liberal, conservative, and what have you. And Alito uh, wrote the opinion here. Justice kind of surprising, Alito, not right? not one of the great defenders always of the First Amendment, uh, of First Amendment uh, free speech, I should say. Um, but um, yes, he does. And I, so I think the, the importance that offensive speech uh, Hate speech is protected under the First Amendment is one of the important walkaways. And it says in, and it says in the opinion, speech that demeans on the basis of race, ethnicity, gender, religion, age, disability, or any other similar grounds is hateful. But the proudest boast of our free speech jurisprudence is that we protect the freedom to express the thought that we hate. And by protecting it, we allow the slants to attack the very bigotry uh, that lends itself to hate speech. So I think that's what's really kind of interesting about this case. The court, uh, if they wanted to duck it, they could have said this is government speech. 
They could have said this is government subsidized speech. They could have said this is commercial speech entitled to a lower level. They could have taken any of those avenues. And they've done that in recent cases. They have. They did it in the Walker versus Texas case, the license plate case. Uh, and uh, so there were a number of, uh, plus, plus the government had asked the court to create a new exception. And all of these sorts of things, the Robert Court says, no, we'll have no part of this. And the slant story played a lot into the case. I mean, the court said that uh, the Patent and Trademark Office disagreed with the slants on what their name actually meant. The Patent and Trademark Office said this was uh, disparaging towards people of uh, Asian ethnicity and that we cannot allow the trademarks to occur. But the slants, to their credit, said, no, we're trying to take ownership of this name. We're trying to wear it like armor so that people can't use it against us and really retake it so that it would uh, really show a sense of pride for those of that ethnicity. Yeah, and they say bad facts make bad law. Here we had good facts making good law. Do you think if the facts were different and you had a group trying to trademark a disparaging name meant to be disparaging, the outcome might have been different? I think it would still be the same because a very strong uh, argument made by this Lance is that there are thousands of trademarks already registered that are very um, disparaging and uh, offensive. There is a plethora of racial and ethnic slurs. There are a number of trademarks that say um, that global warming is bad, global warming is good, capitalism is bad, capitalism is good. So it's really all over the place here. But I think the slant story really played a role in this court's decision. Yeah, and in the interview that's coming up with uh, the slants, they talk about some of these names that are trademarked that just make no sense when you know that the slants uh, were denied their trademark registration. Exactly. And a big factor is that uh, this is not government speech, that trademarks are private speech. And the court really makes a point to say that if trademarks were government speech, the government would be saying, uh, think different by Apple, just do it by Nike, have it your way by Burger King. What is the government saying here? Um, and I think it's a really just an incoherent babble. So the idea that trademarks are private speech gives them the full protection of the First Amendment. Listen, since we're in this First Amendment love fest, uh, l let me um, throw a little bit of mud into the fan here, if I can. Please do. Uh, with the understanding that I agree wholeheartedly with the court, but in the words of Bob Dylan, let us not speak falsely now. The hour is getting <laughs> late. Um, look, uh, if tomorrow somebody wants to trademark the chinks, all right, and they're bigoted, or the niggers, and they're bigoted, you know, or the bleeding vaginas or whatever, mm -hmm. all right? Uh, does this case mean that they get a pass, that the First Amendment protects them? Um, uh, it seems to me that there's, you know, it's great to have a good facts case, but if we had flipped it, you know, if this was overtly, if this was the Klan, you know, uh, or what have you, and they wanted to name a product that they, let's say they had, uh, let's say they wanted to trademark a gun, a rifle, and they wanted to call it nigger killer, all right? Um, let me ask you, what's your view of that? I mean, under, uh, under this case, I think it will be protected. And yeah. I think a really interesting part of the case is the rationale why it is protected. And what the court said is that the reason why we protect offensive speech is because it allows people that may initially be offended by the speech to come to a different conclusion. They may have realized that these terms are wrong and that the marketplace of ideas is working to its full effect and realizing that these ideas are bad and that they should um, be uh, talked about against. For example, if there was a trademark uh, gun saying the nigger killer, I think that would be uh, 
creation of a great debate that we need to have about the use of this language and the use of um, hate in our society. You know, Holmes said that the First Amendment is an experiment. And what's important to realize is experiments sometimes fail. They do. For those of us who defend the First Amendment, we have to be upfront. There's risks involved. I mean, you've painted out the scenario where when that speech gets to the marketplace, all right, the good guys come out and oppose it. Well, what if they don't? What if it goes the other way? That's the beauty of trademark law. We always talk about the marketplace of ideas. And the court made a cool point here. They said that the marketplace of ideas is just a metaphor. But when it comes to trademarks, it takes this metaphor and makes it a powerful reality because people buy goods and services based on the trademark. And I buy Apple products because think different. They're kind of a counterculture company. And so if there was a trademark gun for, that had an offensive term, I would not buy it. I'd be using my dollar to vote. And that's the marketplace of ideas actually occurring in reality using trademarks. Well, yes, but at the time when Holmes is writing about the marketplace of ideas between 1919 and 1931, there was a guy floating ideas in a marketplace uh, where they did have hate speech laws in Germany. And, you know, so I, my only point is this, that for those of us to defend the First Amendment, including the Slants case, we have to understand that there's risks, you know. I mean, I, I think I, I just hate it when liberals, libertarians talk about the great cause and and ignore the risks. At the end of the day, we think that the experiment is worth happening. We pin our hopes that in the marketplace of ideas, the things that you mentioned will happen. But they may not. It's true. You know, and go ahead. But, but I want to I want to push back on on the. I'm the, playing devil's advocate. I know you. I know you. I, I know you are. <laughs> but that 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 statement you made about Hitler is often trotted out. It's like, oh, so would you allow a Hitler to speak in the way that he did and allow him to rise to power and you know, eliminate six million Jews, for example. And we're doing some interesting research on the history of Nazi Germany here as it relates to free speech. And I, I think there's an important thing to remember there is that Nazi Germany wasn't this freewheeling marketplace of ideas. No. Uh, you know, if you spoke out against the Nazi party, especially you know, if you were a newspaper, for example, there are numerous reports of the Nazi party storming your offices mm -hmm. and, and stealing your paper and you know, holding hostage your publisher. But that's a little later in the day. I'm talking about early on, early on. But, but even, even if historically that example doesn't work, and it may not, and I'm willing to defer. And I think we'll I, debate that in yeah. a later podcast, because no, 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 it's no, worth well, fleshing well, out. You know, I, 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 I have no problem with conceding to facts, yielding facts, but, but just hypothetically, I mean, my, my only point is that speech experiments don't always work. I mean, no. we can't, you know, and I think Holmes, like I said, had a right when it was risk. Today we celebrate this, uh, you know, but we have to understand that the, this brings me to another point. If those of us in the liberal community, and I consider myself liberal or libertarian or First Amendment community, that's a better way of putting it. We have to, when we defend speech that is bigoted, at least speaking for myself, I think it's also important to speak out against it, mm -hmm. all right? Um, and, but here with the slants, we have the best of both worlds. And that's what's so wonderful about this, is this ruling. Yeah, when I first uh, saw the case was decided this morning, I was walking in the kitchen here at fire. And I said, you know, I asked people in the office, some of our attorneys, what did we get? What did we get? And they said, it's sort of hard to tell so far because there's all these concurring opinions. Um, you know, it was decided 8-0 because Gorsuch didn't participate. Um, but we... What did we get in the concurring opinions? Why do we have 
concurring opinions in this case. Well, first, I want to say think something about Justice Thomas's lone concurring opinion. I think it's significant for a reason. Well, uh, who, so what is what did the plurality decide, and then what are, what are the concurring opinions before we get there? Like, what are we confident the plurality said, uh, Zach? Uh, the plurality said that um, under the government speech doctrine, which plurality? Oh, two pluralities. <laughs> uh, all pluralities. Okay, yeah, right. so, okay. All pluralities start general, let me get more specific. Okay. All pluralities said that under the government speech doctrine that the government was uh, advocating for in this case, that trademark uh, trademarks are not government speech, they're private speech. And then what we get um, some disagreement on, or I guess some rephrasing of the arguments on is why. Why is it private speech? And the first plurality, which is argued by, I believe it is... Um, Alito, yes, he makes it very clear that it is because there was no uh, subsidy in this case. It's actually the opposite. You pay to have your trademark registered and that the government would be uh, incoherent if they were speaking um, as a matter of fact using trademark law. That's what we were talking about before with Nike and Apple. Exactly. It would have absurd results. And then uh, the other uh, pluralities get more into the, uh, the commercial speech doctrine. That speech that purports to advertise a product would deserve less protection than, say, core political speech, like saying something good or bad about a sitting president. And uh, I think it was the, the Kennedy concurrence. That was one that said that um, even under a commercial speech doctrine, it has, to be, it has to have a substantial government interest here, right? And the government interest here was the punishment of offensive speech, which is an interest that is completely egregious and antithetical to the First Amendment. Hmm. There's an interesting line here in Kennedy's concurring opinion, uh, which is relevant to a lot of the issues that fireworks on on campus, uh, resulting from how listeners react to speech and the, the moves that administrations take to step in and protect those listeners when they, when they call for protection. He said, the government may not insulate a law from charges of viewpoint discrimination by tying censorship to the reaction of the speaker's audience. And that's a great line because we've seen, especially in college campuses, the use of a heckler's veto, the use of violence and other disruptive tactics to silence uh, potentially offensive speech. And that's a great line because it affirms that um, speech that may offend people is still fully protected by the First Amendment. And the idea that you are offended, that speech may offend others, is not a justifiable rationale for censoring such speech. What's interesting about this case, among other things, in addition to what Zach has said, is the lineup. I mean, you have two, I mean, obviously you have unanimity on certain points, uh, but you have one plurality of four, another pl- uh, led by Justice Alito, uh, with the conservatives, and another plurality led by Justice Kennedy with the liberals. And what struck me is, is I see, and I'm curious to hear if you agree, Zach, I see the Kennedy plurality joined by the liberals as being more speech protective. I would have thought that, you know, particularly the chief justice would have been signed on to the Kennedy because it seems to me that the Kennedy view about viewpoint discrimination and strict scrutiny kind of trumps everything else. I mean, that's, that's just, once you play that card, there's no other card you need to play. You don't have to talk about government speech or anything. That card wins you. And that particularly John Roberts, that he didn't sign on to that, I find very interesting. And, that, and I, I do think if Gorsuch were on the court, my guess, just guess, is that he would have signed on to the Kennedy um, 
uh, plurality, which I see as more protective. I'm curious to see hear what you think about oh, that. I agree. I think the, the big surprise here is that Justice John Roberts did not sign on to the more speech protective uh, decision here. He's been very good with free speech issues, going back to many of his prior decisions. And uh, I think that comes from a desire on his part to make this, if at all, a more narrow, limited ruling. That he really wants to make his opinions out there, be concise, and then kind of get out of the way. And I think the, the other rationales in the court are much more emphatic, a little more flowery, and a much more broader, broader language that could be used to invalidate um, many other laws that I don't think Roberts really wanted to address. Yeah, although, you know, there are cases like uh, Stevens' case and others where, you know, he sets out a pretty bold and vigorous defense. But n now we can get to Justice Thomas and his lone uh, concurrence. I thought it was very interesting. I thought he raised an interesting point. Uh, and he said that <clears throat> the issue about the statutory application and interpretation, that is the interpretation of the statute in this case, had really not been raised uh, below by the petitioners or on appeal, and therefore the court shouldn't have addressed that issue. Um, <clears throat> that <clears throat> seven members of the court agree to reach an issue that, if he's correct, that hasn't been raised or hadn't been you know, uh, developed on appeal, that they're going to, willing to reach out and declare that law unconstitutional. I think that's rather significant. It I is. mean, and it's not the sign of a kind of a modest, cautious player, uh, and yet it's an argument that, um, that Justice Thomas flags uh, in his concurrence. Uh, you know, he's, he kind of agrees with everything, but he uh, makes you wonder, well, how can you agree if, you know, if they would, why wouldn't, usually what we do in that situation, right? Was we send it back. Yeah. We send it back for the parties to fully brief and what have you and decide. Um, but so it's interesting if, if, if what he says is indeed the case uh, that the court reached out and, and, and rendered the ruling the way they did. But I think to me that, that um, the whole viewpoint discrimination um, as a key, I mean, not since vagueness and overbreath, I mean, two important doctrines that developed in the really came into their heyday in the, in the 60s and thereafter. Have we seen a doctrine with as much firepower as um, the viewpoint or con and or content discrimination? And here we just see it full blossom, at least with four members of the court. And I do think, of course, such were on, he'd be the fifth. So this is um, really uh, maybe a, an omen of, of yet a more invigorated uh, application of that doctrine. Yeah, I mean, this case is not decided on like intellectual property law or on commercial speech. It's all about viewpoint discrimination. That's the entire thrust of the case. And back to what you said before about Justice Thomas accusing the members of the court of going to an issue that wasn't brief. It reminds me a lot of Citizens United, where you have one section of the court accusing the other section of the court of saying, look, these issues aren't developed. They're not right for our review. We're the highest court in the land. We should only be adjudicating issues that we feel are um, fully briefed. But like you said, most of his fellow justices uh, disagree with him on that point. Yeah, and for those of us that teach constitutional law, you know, and statutory interpretation, the doctrine of constitutional avoidance, you know, you don't reach a constitutional issue until, you know. But they did, uh, they did, they had the court obviously, at least, uh, I mean, all of the eight members had real problems uh, with this uh, statute. They had real problems with the government. Uh, not only did, uh, and I'd be curious to hear you talk about this some more yourself, Zach. But uh, the government wanted to float a new exception. 
you know. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, they tried that before with the Roberts Court, and that didn't work. Uh, they did. I mean, I always say not a day goes by when people aren't trying to expand the very narrow exceptions of First Amendment law. And in this case, it was uh, the government speech doctrine. They were trying to say that um, because the government licenses trademarks, because they confer benefits on individuals, that this is, in fact, government speech. And the government speech doctrine pretty much says that um, the First Amendment only applies to private speech. The government itself is speaking. It can say whatever it wants. For example, the court says during World War II that the government can go out and, and produce pro-war propaganda. They don't have to also produce anti-war propaganda. They can say what they want to say to uh, you know, fund the war effort. And that's a really important um, point because if the government speech doctrine was expanded like it was in the uh, Walker case with state license plates, you're going to see more areas of the law, such as trademarks, that are um, not covered by the First Amendment, where the government can dictate what is being said, even though there was a lot of private involvement in this case, such as private individuals creating trademarks. So when Elena Kagan argued a case before the Supreme Court, and or, or urged the courts to create a new exception. The Roberts Court categorically rejected that. So here, so so the walk, the takeaway from the government, I think, it was the Stevens case, okay. the United States versus Stevens. Um, so when, when that, when, she was obviously in the solicitor's office, uh -huh. hadn't come to court yet. Um, uh, I think that was the case. But so so the government said the the takeaway from that was well, we can't create a new exception. So what they did here is they took the government speech doctrine. Okay, and then the subsidized speech doctrine, and put those two together, and said, "Well, if you put those two together, then you come up with a new exception: the government doctrine, uh, the government program doctrine." I guess it was. I think it was that. Yeah, yeah, yeah the government that, program doctrine. Grover, government program was kind of cr interesting. So you take two exceptions, you expand them, right, and then you create a new one. And the court said, "We'll have none of that." Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, you know, I, I think uh, yet again an example that beyond a narrow class of exceptions, this court is unwilling uh, to create. I mean, interesting, I mean, a Machiavellian move by the government, right? Let's take two exceptions and we, when we put them together, the two of them are together are bigger than they would be apart. Very creative lawyering. Yeah, uh, but not creative enough. Not for the court. They see through that very well. And I think they're very cognizant of the narrow exceptions of the First Amendment. And they want to preserve those, preserve their narrowness, narrowness and cabin them so the First Amendment freedoms are given the broadest latitude possible. Yeah. We want to hear from the slants. Uh, so I want to close up here. And I know, Ron, you've got one more thing to say. But I, I, let me ask my final question. You can, you can add it then. Are we surprised it's 8 uh, during our interview with the slants that, again, you will hear here shortly? Uh, one of the members says that his favorite justice, uh, I believe he said this, uh, was Justice Sotomayor. But he said, sort of as an aside, but she's not going to be on our side in this case. Well, she is. So I'm going to, Zach, why don't you start and say um, whether I mean, you th think this is a surprise. So during the or arguments for this case, the, party, uh, the parties were hammered by the justices. Both uh, advocates were asked many very biting, uh, difficult questions by the justices. But... Like anyone who listens to our arguments knows, it's notoriously difficult to predict the outcome of a case based on the questions that are asked. So in a way, it is surprising. But in another way, I think it is not considering how um, clear the law was on the slant side, how the government was really fighting an uphill battle to, like uh, Ron said, to expand the exceptions to the First Amendment. I think although the justices did really want to 
get the issues out on the table, really um, ask the advocates what their thoughts were and how this would impact future cases. I think it is not that surprising that the justices uh, refused to um, expand the government speech doctrine in this case. Mm-hmm. Ron? Who assigned the opinions in this case, right? It's interesting. When you have 4-4, who assigns them, right? I mean, uh, anyway, no, it was, um, you know, a little surprising in this sense. I mean, when I, when I heard the oral arguments, it, it seemed to me that there was a, a fair amount of momentum, uh, even from the liberal wing, uh, for First Amendment uh, protection. Um, but, you know, there was the Walker case. And in that case, I just thought, well, you know, if they were concerned about license plates and offensive things being on license plates, then, you know, uh, what about, you know, this case and, you know, offensive things being used in trademark and some along the line. So in that sense, it was a little bit of a uh, surprise. Uh, but, um, you know, to kind of echo something that Floyd Abrams has been saying and with, I think, quite a bit of justification, uh, is yet another example of the court's uh, here commitment uh, um, to First Amendment values. Uh, I d- was surprised. I thought it was going to be 9-zip. Uh, what the heck, it turned out to be 8-0. Uh, but um, I do want to say one last thing uh, to the band, the slants. Uh, first of all, congratulations, guys. Uh, well, uh, well learned. And um, know this, tonight I will be sitting with a group of folks raising uh, bottles of flying dog beer in your honor. And so here's to the slants and to all the fine folks at Flying, uh, flying Dog as well, a, a great company that supports the First Amendment. Yeah, and actually hosted the slants for a performance, yes. I believe, in April. They did. So um, I think we're going to close it out there. And, and to echo you, Ron, I mean, the, all the band members of the slants, in particular Simon Tam, who has taken this from its, its start to its conclusion, uh, they are First Amendment heroes. Uh, there's a very, very awesome quote that I want to have framed and put up in my office uh, from Simon Tan in the interview all of you are just about to hear where he says, he quotes Martin Luther King, he says, a moral arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. And Simon said, you know, he's right about that, but he forgot one thing, that the arc doesn't bend by itself. And that's why people like myself and like this band need to stand up for everyone and for all of our rights. So I was really excited to get the chance for them to come to our Philadelphia office and interview them. Uh, they were here on tour, I guess they did an East Coast tour. Um, I interviewed them and then they played a couple of songs which after we play the outro following this interview, you'll get a chance to hear they played two songs. Most of the interview is with Simon Tam, uh, but the other band members are there and they chime in. Um, and again, we held this podcast until we had a decision. Now we have a decision. Uh, I wanna thank you, Zach and Ron, for participating in this, this flash briefing uh, put you guys on the spot. We've only had the decision for a couple of hours, so I, I implore listeners uh, that if we did get anything wrong during this podcast, it was only because we were trying to do it on such short notice. But I'll get out of the way now, and we'll turn it over to the Slants. The Slants, welcome to Philadelphia. Thanks so much Thank for having us. Why the Slants? Why the band name? Um, back in the day when I was looking to uh, start a band, a band that I knew that I wanted to portray the Asian American experience, I also wanted to challenge some stereotypes. So I started asking people around me, like, what's something you think all Asians have in common? They immediately responded with slanted eyes, which I always thought was interesting, because number one, it's not true. Not all Asians have slanted eyes, and, and Asians are not the only people with any kind of slant to their eyes. 
Uh, but number two, it's also a way to pay homage to Asian American activists who've been using the term in this kind of reappropriated way for, for decades. Um, if, so then we can kind of talk about our own slant on life of what it's like to be. Oh, that's creative, yeah. Yeah, it's also a musical phrase, and you slang guitar cabs and that kind of thing. And I thought this is a really interesting word with a lot of nuances that we can use to kind of drive conversations about our experiences, and more importantly, as a band, have a cool sounding name. Yeah, so when the band started, was it just you? Uh, it, yeah, it, it was just me for the first two years. Okay. And it was just kind of scrounging around, posting ads up in uh, Asian supermarkets, Craigslist, MySpace back then, uh -huh. uh, trying to find a, a lineup to put together so that we can start playing and recording music. Yeah, and what did you guys think about the name The Slants? I like it. I mean, I, I like, again, what Simon's saying. It, it presses forward that discussion that I think not only of our community, but our whole world needs to have. Yeah, because you're a new addition to the yeah, band, right? Yeah, I'm the newest one. I've been here about, what, six or seven months? Just about. Great. And so you're a band and you wanted to get this band name trademarked? Yeah. What was that process like? Well, <laughs> originally it's supposed to be easy. It's supposed uh -huh. to only take a couple months and be a few hundred bucks, but it turned out to be a battle that's lasted over eight years now. Uh, we've gone to the trademark office multiple times, Federal Circuit, which is a second highest court in the land, and of course uh, the Supreme Court as well. All the while, I would say it's probably one of the most frustrating things that I've ever done because we're trying to do something empowering for our community. We're actually widely supported by our community. Mm -hmm. I mean, surveys show 92 to 98 percent of Asian Americans believe in our use of the name. And then we have a single government employee who disagrees, who is not Asian American, who's never talked to an Asian about our name, who thinks, oh, because it used to be some obscure racial slur, that we don't have the right to use it. And so they've been denying us over and over again for almost a decade now. Yeah, and they, they're denying you under the disparagement clause of the 1946 Lanham Trademark Act, which I mentioned before, which prohibits trademarks that may disparage persons, living or dead, institutions, beliefs, or national symbols, or bring them into contempt or disrepute. Uh, but they've, they've trademarked or they've registered trademarks for other names that you'd think um, would fall under the the ambit of this clause. Um, the Reason magazine submitted an amicus brief and they talked about how the registered trademarks include such hollowed brands as capitalism sucks donkey balls and take your panties off. And, <laughs> and I guess NWA also has a trademark. Too. They do, yeah. And so obviously they're not consistent about it and that's one of the issues of the Lanham Act is that it's incredibly vague uh -huh. and we believe that vagueness actually is one of the reasons why it's unconstitutional. Because who can define what disparaging means? And who ultimately gets to say what's disparaging or scandalous or not? Mm -hmm. and when you have unclear rules, it makes it unfair for everyday citizens who want rights, who apply for them, and can't be guaranteed of the result either way. Really, it depends if the examining attorney is having a good day or a bad day, and if you get the right person. Yeah, because they have also approved names that include slant in it yes, as well. Yes, hundreds of times. <laughs> I'm the only person in all of U.S. history to be denied a trademark registration for slant on the premise that it's racist towards Asian people. Why did you decide to sue? Well, ultimately I decided to appeal after I learned how the law was being used. Mm -hmm. It was being used disproportionately to target uh, members of the LGBTQ community and communities of color because those tend to be the groups that reappropriate language yeah. and stuff that's offensive and say, you know what, 
I'm not gonna let this affect my community, I'm gonna turn it into self-empowerment instead. But reappropriation is really confusing to the government, it's really confusing to people to say like, wait, can I use this word or can I not use this word? Is this offensive or not? And therefore, the government says, you know what, you guys don't get, you don't get to do it. Yeah, have you, had you all been interested in First Amendment issues, free speech issues previous to this? I'm just happy to be a musician. Yeah. <laughs> like I saw the ad and um, just joined the band. Then, you know, got into the, like the snowball effect of, because I joined the band before it even went to federal, the, like the federal circuit and everything. So I was just like, oh, this band has a little bit of press. And now it has a lot of press. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's interesting because I want to explore that avenue of questioning, dealing with the importance of free speech to artists and musicians. I mean, why... Why is it important that you have these protections as musicians? I mean, I think it's absolute because artists should have room to protect their creative property, their intellectual property rights. And I think that whether it's a musician or a comedian or a filmmaker, mm -hmm. you need to absolutely have these protections so that you can inspire more art, more creative works. If the government has an issue with parody or satire or even things that they disagree with, then I think it's a problem. The, we shouldn't allow the government to choose winners and losers when it comes to viewpoints or beliefs because ultimately, at the end of the day, that's bad for democracy. Yeah. You need to have tools like satire and wit to be able to neuter malice because uh, I, I firmly believe that you know, the cure for bad speech, hate speech, is not censorship. It's better speech, it's more nuanced speech. Otherwise, you're just shutting the conversation down and allowing those kind of problems to linger. Mm -hmm. do, what do you think of the environment for free speech in this country right now, especially after the, the election, tensions are high, um, it seems like we can't cross, talk across lines of differences. Do you think free speech is an important tool to sort of reconcile those differences? Absolutely. I think there's a kind of this mythical idea of people say, oh, the, our country's too PC now or something like that, as if, you know, it's too politically correct, as if you're going to get a ticket and, like, some policeman's going to come say, well, you know what, you're not being PC enough. And that's, that's not true. Most of the time, if you ha actually have genuine interactions with people, uh, people start seeing that, hey, we actually don't have different values. We have the same values. We just interpret them a little bit differently. And so I think you need to allow room for that conversation to take place. Yeah. So for practical purposes, though, it's also important that you can register the trademark, the slants, because um, record labels often require this of bands. Yes, in and, order to be signed. Yeah, and I, I read somewhere, I think it was in the Washington Post, that there's actually two bands after you formed that called themselves the slants. They, they did pop up, but they're, yeah. they're gone now. They're gone now. But... It, had you registered the trademark, they could have seen it on the, the Federal Registry of Trademarks, right? So that's the distinction here is that you can still enforce your mark. You still have the trademark, the slants, but it's not listed on the federal website, right? Well, that's actually kind of up for debate. Really? So there's a couple of uh, legal experts who believe that if you have a mark that's not registrable, it's not enforceable under mm -hmm. common law protection uh, based on a couple of cases that take like over 100 years back. No one's really tested that theory out yet. Uh -huh. We might be the first, so we're not exactly sure. Uh, but that being said, people who say things like, oh, you can still use the trademark, you just can't have the registration, kind of sounds like you can still ride the bus, you just gotta sit in the back. I mean, we shouldn't have secondary rights. We shouldn't be treated like second-class citizens just because we have 
a mark that the government may not like. Yeah. So how does everyone in the band feel about the Supreme Court case at this point? Has it risen the band's profile at all? Has it had that sort of Streisand effect when the government seeks to censor or diminish a name? It actually amplifies it? <laughs> well, Joe's been actually working on it from a different perspective. He's actually working on a documentary. Oh, really? Tell yes. us about it. I mean, the, just following Simon, so I joined right before the federal uh, circuit, and I actually went with Simon to the federal circuit to sort of experience it for the first round. Um, I would say, to me, as a musician, it's a big distraction. As a filmmaker who is interested in the story, it's definitely, yeah, it's a name recognition. People who I meet on the street, if I said the slants, they would be like, oh, I've heard of you guys, but not the music. It tends to be, oh, I read you on... Washington Post, or I heard you on NPR. And that's the extent of their knowledge of the band. And a lot of times that actually hurts us a little bit because then we're, you know, our music's not being put out. They, they focus on the news. Yeah, we get pigeonholed as like the band going to court, not the band with like really great 80s synth pop music. <laughs> I always joke about cool points, and I feel like we lose a lot of cool points for going to court. Yeah. Well, Simon, you've always melded music and activism, right, since the get go. Uh, more or less. I, I think just the fact that we're establishing an Asian American band mm -hmm. is a form of activism in of itself because we're, we're kind of defying the norm. Yeah. Uh, the, most people can't name any other Asian American bands in, in the country. And yeah. so just by us existing, we're kind of challenging the status quo and saying, you know what, we're going to do something a little bit different here. Yeah, you said when you started you were the only all-Asian dance rock group Correct. in the United States. Yeah, Asian American. Asian American, Asian American. Yeah, that's yeah. A, I added that the United yeah, yeah, States at the bands, end. Yeah, bands from Asia, but not, yeah. not, not any kind of born and raised from, from the U.S. Yeah. What do your fans think of this whole battle? <laughs> I, think, I think most of them think it's ridiculous that we have to go through yeah. this, but yeah. they're really, really supportive. Um, and it's, to me, it's amazing because not only do we have great support from the Asian American community, but people who are outside of that experience as well. Uh, we got people both on the far right as well as on the far left in support of our case. So uh, it kind of doesn't fall along traditional partisan lines. It doesn't fall along demographical or, or generational lines. Like we just have broad support. Most of the time people are like, this is really ridiculous. Why does your band have to go all the way to the Supreme Court to fight this? You ought to just have that trademark registration. Yeah. The everyday layperson gets it and knows that, hey, or they'll say like, don't we have the First Amendment, doesn't that help you out in any kind of way? Have you made any sort of unlikely allies in, the, in this, uh, <laughs> this fight? Oh well, yeah, most people point to the football team. Washington. The Redskins, yeah, yeah, the Redskins. They try to insert themselves into your case, right? Uh, they try to take over. They, <laughs> they, they filed a motion at the Supreme Court to combine our case with theirs yeah. and to have them argue instead of us because they said they were better advocates. Um, but, but their case is slightly different because they had the mark and then it was rescinded. Yeah, so ours has to do with the registration, theirs has to do with the cancellation. So, um, so more of a due process issue. Yeah, and very much a Fifth Amendment issue of like seizure of property because mm -hmm. they built um, over the almost a century a, a lot of goodwill and invested a lot of money behind their name. So if the government just cancels that right away, that's a different kind of constitutional issue. Yeah. But there are certainly parallels and, you know, we understand that if we win, no doubt it actually helps them, whether we want it to or not. Uh -huh. Were you at the oral arguments? Yeah, the entire band was. Yeah, yeah and what was that? Was, was it sort of surreal? It was intense. <laughs> just, that, just that hour sitting there 
in front of the justices, just not knowing what was going to happen and listening to all the questions was really interesting. Yeah. What did you think? How do you think the argument went? Because the, the other side argued first. And I was just listening to the argument before, I, before uh, this interview. And it, they asked tough questions on both sides. Yeah, definitely did. I mean, I, th- I think it went pretty well. I think um, they weren't quite as hard on our attorney, and there were definitely mistakes made on both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it shows how complex of issues we're dealing with here, that the court's really trying to wrestle with this um, line between an inherent civil liberty and offensiveness and, and, and good taste. And yeah. uh, so it has less to do with um, the facts. I mean, the facts are what they are. It has to do with the interpretation of, of those facts. Like, okay, where does the First Amendment end in this case? Where does, quote unquote, government speech end? Because in the government's opinion, they think if someone registers a trademark, that constitutes as government speech. Like, mm-hmm. this is the government speaking. Although they've registered some very offensive things. They've, you know, the, uh, so I'm like, if you and guys probably were, contradictory things. So the, if it's if it's government yeah. speech, the government's arguing out of two sides of its mouth on a lot of issues. Yeah, presumably. Because I was like, okay, so you guys really want to say the government is talking about milf hunter? Because that's a registered <laughs> trademark. You you really want to uh, show how inconsistent you are? Because, uh, for example, Madonna was rejected for wines, and then it was later on approved for, by somebody else for wines. Exact same word, exact same mark. Um, Heap Media, rejected for t-shirts, okay for magazines. Mm-hmm. Dykes on Bikes, rejected as a name, later on approved, but rejected as a logo. You'd think, you'd think almost these trademark attorneys would want this disparagement clause to get stricken down because it just makes their lives so much easier. We're doing them a favor. <laughs> like, because Go take a longer lunch. Yeah, I mean, the reality is they don't have a lot of resources or they, they, they say they don't have a lot of resources. Mm-hmm. And we're expecting examining attorneys to understand the entire breadth of the English language, every word in the dictionary, in every context, and how it relates to different identities that they may or may not have a connection yeah. with. It's an impossible standard. And when you add in this, these words like, oh, it's, you can't register the stuff that's immoral or scandalous. What's scandalous to me is probably going to be a lot different than what's scandalous exactly. to you or Ken or Joe or Yuya or anyone else here uh, because we all have different life experiences. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about the expectation that they'll know what every word means. When they denied your registration, um, they cited Urban Dictionary. UrbanDictionary.com, yeah, a wiki site. Uh, and the funny thing it's is... It's now official federal reference uh, it, site. The thing is they actually quote Urban Dictionary all the time. Like in many, many other cases. And the ironic thing is that even the print version of Urban Dictionary doesn't use slant as a racial slur. Mm -hmm. So they realized... I didn't even know there was a print version. (laughs) Yeah, there there is. The the editors took the best and most reliable things and made a print dictionary. Uh And they're like, no, slant is actually not a commonly used racial slur. We're not going to include it. Uh How has this case affected your personal lives? Because going to court can be time-consuming and expensive if you, if you don't have a pro bono attorney. Uh, yeah, I mean, thankfully we've had someone working pro bono for the last six mm-hmm. years. I mean, for me, I've had, we're still responsible for appellate printing, which, you know, if you're going through the legal system and you're fighting, you can't go to Kinko's or you use your buddy's printing shop. You have to go through a court-approved printer who charges premium prices for everything. So tens of thousands of dollars have been spent on this case just on printing. Yeah. Every time you want to appeal, every time you want to file, that's more money. So 
had to take on second and third jobs to pay for this fight. Um, I mean, I tell people I've been in the court system for eight years now, and I haven't even committed a crime. And that's the reality is even if we win at the end of the day, I don't get any, a single cent back from any of those fees. I don't get any of those years back from my life. Mm -hmm. So it's certainly been a challenge more times than not. But, but at the end of the day, we have to do what's right, and that's fighting for marginalized communities by protecting the First Amendment. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for that civil liberties attorney to go out there and file the lawsuit against the court-mandated printers. Uh, <laughs> ACLU, come on. Yeah, right? <laughs> Hook us up. But um, I mean, they, they've been really great. Uh, ACLU has been supportive since uh, we went to the federal circuit. And in fact, they actually argued before the court on our behalf as well. Oh, awesome. So that, that was um, amazing to watch. I, it was just such a pleasure because they, uh, Lee, their attorney, is like, just on fire. She was just shouting those justices. Lee Rowland? Like, yeah. yeah. Those judges were like trying coming at her and she was just like, nope, let me tell you how the law works. It was amazing. So you're trying to try and go to as many of the arguments as you can? Um, at least, well, the, the two. The yeah. Federal Circuit when they heard it en banc, so all 12 judges, and then of course at the Supreme Court itself. Mm -hmm. I mean, as, a, as someone working in law, I think it's really important for judges and justices to look at the people who they're making decisions about, because they tend to treat it in a very de detached, theoretical kind of sense. Mm -hmm. And I think it's good to remind them like, hey, actual human lives are being affected by the decisions you make, whether they're good or bad. Yeah, and you, you're saying right now that an all Asian dance rock group can't call themselves the slants. That's what they're saying. Uh, yeah. and we're, and so we're trying to fight against that. Uh, did, did, the, did the patent uh, and trademark office know you were an Asian rock group? They when did. They In fact, so we, when we asked them, we said, hey, Slant's been registered many, many times before. Why did you say it's disparaging or offensive in this case, but not any of those other cases? They said it is incontestable that the applicant is of Asian descent and part of an Asian band. In other words, they said it was precisely because we were Asian. And they tried to prove this by saying, look, if you go to slants.com, there's photos of Asians all over the website. You got dragons, rising suns on your album covers. Um, that's just too Asian. And because in their mind, if people go to the website or they see us in concert and they see a bunch of Asian people on the stage, uh -huh. they're going to automatically think of the racial slur instead of any other definition in the dictionary. But what it's really saying is, Anyone can register a trademark for the slants as long so as long they're as not, not Asian. Asian. Yeah, but you're also fighting back in your music, right? You have a recent EP out. It's called "The Band Who Must Not Be Named." Yeah, and there's a song on there, right? That's called "Fight Back." Uh, it, it, there is a song called "Fight Back," and it's about fighting against oppression. Uh -huh. We also have another song called "From the Heart," which is kind of like our open letter to the trademark office. Yeah, and you you have a music video for that as well, right? Uh, yeah, it was filmed in uh, Joe's friend's studio. Yeah, that's a it's a temporary video. We're gonna do a full full production for that oh, one too. Oh, awesome! Yeah, we want to have that be our final word on this court case. We want to move on uh -huh. as soon as the decisions you know coming through here. We want to move on from it, but we want to have one final word. Yeah, when do you expect the decision? It's a high-profile case. Those usually come late June. Yeah, that's was pretty much expecting late June. Yeah. What do you plan to do to celebrate if you win the case? Release the video, I'm assuming. Um, film the video. <laughs> film the video. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll probably celebrate 
uh, in our favorite way, which is playing music, playing rock and roll. Yeah. And what, what about if, if you unfortunately lose? If we lose, uh, we're not quite sure yet. I mean, I think we'll just continue to find other ways to fight against the system and, and to find ways to protect our name and, and kind of go from there. It really depends on how they rule. I, th I think at this point, it's looking pretty good. Um, and there's a possibility that the court rules narrowly, so on statutory grounds. In other words, trademark office was way wrong on this. The ban should have had it, but the law itself is still good and remains intact. Obviously, that's not what we're looking for either because just because it's our band's involved, it, it, it's actually much bigger than our band. It affects a lot of other, lot of other cases. Um, for example, the the San Francisco group I mentioned, Dykes on Bikes, they've been in litigation for 16 years. Um, this amazing Seattle feminist uh, rock and roll band called Thunder Pussy, they were rejected for their trademark. Um, what it, an example that I always think about is this man who opened a restaurant, a Japanese restaurant using a Japanese word. The, the name of the restaurant being Fuku, F-U-K-U. But the trademark office rejected it, not because Fuku is an obscenity, it's just a Japanese word for joy or luck. They rejected it because it looked too much like an obscenity. Wow. Um, even though it's a beautiful Japanese word, very you know, loaded with meaning for the Japanese community. And ironically, they had no problems whatsoever with French Connection UK, which is FCUK, <laughs> also looks like an obscenity. So over and over again, we see how it's just inappropriately and inconsistently used. And we shouldn't stand for that in terms yeah. of like government regulations. And you're not, and you're not. What is, uh, by way of closing here, what is one thing from each of you that happened in this journey that you didn't expect to happen? Or one thing that you've learned from it? I've learned that um, we have support from pretty much everybody on both sides, and that surprised me a lot. Yeah, except I, the government, apparently. Except, well, <laughs> the funny thing is that uh, we were actually on a compilation album with the Obamas and the uh, Asian American Pacific Islanders department there in the, uh, in the White House, and they called us champions for the Asian American community. So one side of the government says, hey, you guys are champions, you guys are doing things right, while the other side is saying, you guys are racist against Asians. <laughs> and so that's just really confusing, but to have support from you know, bipartisan both sides really surprised me. Yeah. Anything else? Ruth Bader Ginsburg is even smaller in person, <laughs> but she can command the stage. Her voice can pretty much shut everybody else up in the room, and you will listen to her. She's smart. She is smart. Brilliant. I have a. I personally have a crush on her. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually have a crush on Sotomayor. I'm on Sotomayor, so I know she's not going to support us, but you know, I support her. Yeah. I mean, I, I think just throughout this journey, we realize how change takes a long, long time. I think a lot about uh, one of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther King Jr., which says that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And when every time I think about that quote, and I think about our particular journey, I realize that, that the moral arc does not bend on its own. It requires people who are dedicated to the cause of freedom, mm -hmm. of liberty, of, of fighting for marginalized communities and that we need to, we were placed in this opportunity to tackle this law on, it, be it as obscure and old of a law it may be, it's still a form of injustice in our government and it's one that we believe should be removed. So we're stepping up to the plate and we're gonna fight it until the bitter end. Yeah, well that, I think that's a wonderful note to end on. 
Uh, you promised us a song or two, so yeah. I think right now we'll we'll take off our our microphones and you guys will grab your instruments and we'll we'll we'll, we'll rock out. Sounds good. That was the all Asian rock group, The Slants. I want to congratulate them again on their victory at the Supreme Court. And if you're interested in learning more about The Slants, you can visit their website at theslants.com. If you're interested in learning more about the case, you can see Zach Greenberg's write-up over at thefire.org. And if you want to see a video version of this podcast interview, you can go to youtube.com slash thefireorg. Just look for the podcast titled, so to speak, The Free Speech Podcast Interviews the slants. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reese and Chris Maltby. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at speak at thefire.org, or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Reviews help us attract new listeners to the show, so I thank you in advance. Now, I'll give the slants the final word and let their music bring us home, so to speak. This is a recording of the two-song set they performed at Fire's offices in Philadelphia back in April. Here we go. Look at them, a broken
misunderstood or frustrated by haters out there. So if you felt unheard, invisible, invisible or unnoticed, I want to invite you to be a part of this. So when I point at you, you say no. Ready? No. Again. No. So when you see something wrong, are you just going to remain silent? No. You see someone getting put down, you're getting put down, what do you say? No. Are you guys going to leave here without looking us up on Facebook? No. <laughs> All right, let's do this for Sorry if my notes too sharp. Sorry if our voice is too raw. To make the piano weapon center our intelligence until I thought you nothing at all. Sorry if you take offense. You made a frozen play defense. No, you fear change. Something so strange. Nothing's gonna get in our way. Oh, man. 
Thank you. Thank you.